Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bound. On today's programme, I'm speaking to the British artist Jeremy Della. Della is often described as a conceptual artist. And before you start grumbling that this is a poor definition, after all, what artist isn't, this one really is. For evidence, see this quick list of greatest hits. A film titled Everybody in the Place that presented a history of British rave culture to schoolchildren. Stonehenge in bouncy castle form and titled Sacrilege. Acid Brass, in which the Williams Ferry Brass Band from Stockport played acid house and techno music on their shiny horns, and a reenactment of the so-called Battle of Orgreave, a very real event from 1984 in which the police and striking British miners confronted each other violently. It was also one of those episodes that defined Margaret Thatcher's years as Prime Minister and politically, spiritually and perhaps conceptually split Britain. Della's relationship with his homeland, he was born in Dulwich, South London in the mid-1960s, seems to be complex, questioning, challenging and tender. He represented Britain at the Venice Biennale in 2013 and was typically clever, critical, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed and funny. He fantasised about eagles carrying off cyclist-crushing Range Rovers in their talons, provided a spotter's guide to art collectors' super yachts and encouraged visitors to contemplate history by handling a 5,000-year-old Neolithic hand axe. Della's work is alive with ideas that combine notions of history and how we recount it, politics and nationhood, media, music, ritual and magic. Indeed, Della's new book is titled Art is Magic and it serves as a survey show of sorts, a best of that successfully captures those slippery concepts and puts them between two hard covers. It's as fascinating and bewitching as the artist himself and similarly alive with colour. Jeremy Della. Jeremy, congratulations on Art is Magic. It's Thank a you. beautiful artefact. Thank From you. a man that doesn't do artefacts, it's yeah. a beautiful artefact. It's true. And I wanted to ask you first about the sort of subtitle, A Children's Book for Adults. Well, that was just a play, really, because I okay. wanted to make a book that was full of images and was mm. quite playful. I had that appeal of maybe what children's books have. Yeah. You could dip into it at any point and just it's full of stories as well and anecdotes and so on. So it's it's meant to be quite a light book. There's the main text and then there's like all the captions to images, which is almost like a, a concurrent parallel text. Yeah. Which is more chatty. And they tell little <laughs> stories behind the scenes, some of them and what it was like to be in a place or make something. So there's a an element of revelation there. But it's a book that uh, is meant to be quite playful and user friendly in a way that a children's book is. Yeah, I mean, your in your cover image is a boy in swimming trunks doing a sort of somersault on sacrilege, yes. which is your inflatable Stonehenge. <laughs> yes, he's he's as well he might. He's a young right. gymnast actually. I got a. But he looks great. It's yeah, a beautiful in, image. It's the piece of land near the Olympic site. I got a group of young gymnasts to perform on it basically, and to sort of fly around it. And this is a, a photograph taken of a of a young boy, of a child. God, it sounds just weird, doesn't it? Of a child <laughs> doing a somersault. So it's an amazing down. image. People should, will, will be tapping away and Googling this as yes. we speak. I so he's upside that. down doing gymnastics. But you're upside basically. down looking at it. There you go. 
Yeah. yeah. So that's me. I took that picture. So there we go. There he is, sort of um, flying almost around Stonehenge. This is another one of your works that is entirely about people's response. Well, it's not entirely about. There's a lot of the artist's work in it, but mm. it's very much about how people interact with it and what people get out of it and how people have fun with it or yeah. stroke their chins and stare at it and all the rest of it. Well, so this is another one in that of your series. Well, you know, in, in a sense, yeah. Well, it is, and it's an absolutely interactive work. It doesn't exist until people go yeah. on it, in a way. When it's empty and there's no Maybe one on it. Maybe coach trips could go to the, the naked inflatable yeah. as well. and just look at it. But it, would be, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it has no meaning if there's no one on it. Right. So the, yeah. the work is completed and activated by the public. The naming of that work, I guess, was to do with... There's a folk tradition, folk art, I suppose, yeah. that runs through your practice Absolutely. and your ideas of things. So there's that as well, but there's also kind of a healthy, I hope, I don't know, a healthy degree of piss take well, of the worthy uh, yes, I mean, monument. I, I called it sacrilege because I thought I was setting myself up for making something that would be massively criticised by certain sections of the population not least druids actually i thought i was quite in not in fear of such but i was worried about how that community would feel about it and strangely i met some when it went it went relatively close to stonehenge it went to marlborough which mm. is you know 20 miles away and some druids turned up and they were just they just loved it and they got it they understood yeah. the humor of it and the meaning of it in a sense and and the use of it yeah. and they just loved seeing children running around on stonehenge which is of course something you can't do really and mm. and so they instinctively got it which was great but i thought i'd put i'd get the criticism in first yeah, yeah, by exactly. criticizing the work in the name almost because very it, wise yeah um i wanted just to go back before we park the children's book idea we could do this at the end but we'll come to it now yeah you talk about growing up in south london and yeah. about attending school and about being a bedroom person yes having this universe in your bedroom mm. you speak beautifully and eloquently about that and i'm sure it touches at many nerves with yeah. our listeners as well yeah. and i wondered what sort of children's books you were reading what well, i i loved wow. osborne and i'm presuming you were of that vibe that era What's possibly osborne know? books you know with all the cross sections and how oh, things work yes i i i <clears throat> was yes i was like you i was more into <laughs> Non-fiction than fiction. Mm -hmm. I didn't know the real distinction then. I was yeah. more into history books and ladybird books, which were apparently telling you about things that happened even in their own sort of way. <laughs> but I was really into those sorts of... I feel like books. you're putting an asterisk there. Well, you know, <laughs> because, of course, it's a very sort of selective view of history. Yeah. But I was very interested in history and modern history and mm. ancient history and solar system and Vikings and you know egyptians all that stuff i loved it and and dinosaurs so that was my world and so museums became very important because they you could see the objects that you've been looking mm. at in books and so on so for me that was important i wasn't i wasn't raised on wind in the willows i wasn't raised on sort of uh, alice in wonderland right strangely i didn't have those kind of books and weirdly now when you read them i did read alice in wonderland yet a few years ago kind of an amazing book it's absolutely nuts and it's like yeah it would have been lost on a child almost it felt yeah. like but but still it was yeah it was history books and very much that was what i loved the way that art is magic is laid out it is a wonderful kind of cacophony of imagery mm. and it reminds me of in a good way of some of those osborne books some of those children's well, books well it has a feel about it because of the you know, way we've done yeah. the cover it's it's there's no slip cover it's just a hard cover with a photographic cover as it were with a slight sort of vinyl effect, Lovely. like a grain. Yeah. 
almost like a kind of an annual you'd get at the end of the year for some not Guinness Book necessarily, but something like that. It has that feel to it, and I, and I wanted that feel to it, and I wanted it full of colour and full of images, and but also the text. I've written the text, which is a painful process, but <laughs> I've written more or less everything in it, and so it's from my perspective. So it's. I'd like to think that it's like sitting next to me in a pub or in a cafe, yeah. And I'm just telling you, this I did this like this, and this is these are the problems, and this is the motivation as well. It's a hundred percent success in that sitting next to you in a pub or a cafe kind of vibe. It's mm. such a lovely thing. Is it difficult to be to divulge your practice and what you were thinking at the time and what you think of a work now and how it transpired during the making or activity I, of it? I think it takes a bit of time afterwards to work out what it was that happened and how yeah. it happened. But I, for me, it's very important to. I'm a real explainer, and a lot of artists aren't, and that's their thing. They mm. don't want you to know. They want a bit of mystery, but. I'm one for explaining things and for making it clear why I'm the motivation for doing things especially. So for me, it's not a problem. And, but of course, <laughs> when you put it all into a book, it's different because it's everything. It's not just one thing. And you maybe you, it's probably easier for you to get a picture of me than it is for me to from looking yeah. at this. Yeah, and I wonder whether that, looking back in the making, making and publishing this book, now it's, a, now it's a thing that we've both got on the studio desk here. Do you yourself as an artist and as a person in the different times that you know in the different periods leading up to some of these projects do you kind of go Whoa. yeah I remember that I mean there's a nice chat between you and a mate of yours and you used to go to private views in the East End around Shoreditch yeah. and stuff like that and there's a nice Q&A between the two of you mm. and that's very revealing of you at a time it's all about when you weren't quite well you weren't yet an artist no we were we were both at a point Just where lats, we, I think, really. yes we were interested in art we were making it, but no one was interested in us or what we were doing. But that didn't matter because we were enjoying ourselves. It is funny when you look at work because, of course, it reminds you about what was else was going on in your life at the time when these things were done. So mm. it, it's quite shocking to have your life in a book, I'd say. Yeah. For me, um, personally. Yes, yeah, so I was going to ask you because it is that thing. And it is that thing of suddenly realising you've got to have a, a pretty uh, steady tone of voice through a book like yeah. this. And actually... If you, I don't know whether you made a diary when you were younger or you still have one or never have, but there is a strange thing where you kind of, you pick up the vibe of a certain, you're in a, in a certain week, you're in a certain mood, you're in, the, in a certain mood to realise a certain project. Mm. And then you have to have a fairly constant tone of voice in order to deliver a sort of magnum opus, you know, a yes. kind of survey show type of book yes, like this. Yes, I think I've... Like I said, the, the, the captions are more chatty. Then I, I love the captions. And, yeah. and they were really important. They came very late in the day, much to the horror of the editor, that I changed all the captions to actually, I just felt I need to make the captions much more approachable. And then the, the body of the text, I like to think I'm pre, being pretty open about why I was doing something and, uh, yeah. and just trying to be straightforward and not be pretentious. Because I... Of course, a lot of people assume that modern art is pretentious, which is not the case. I don't think it is at all. Maybe the writing about it is. Yeah. That's the problem. The We've all itself. kind of got out of sticky gumboots going through press releases yes. and wool texts yes. in, in contemporary galleries. Quite, we? quite. And I think yeah. that's especially press releases. And I think that's a, that does a disservice, I think, to a lot of art. Yeah. So I try and be as straightforward as I can. But then a lot of the work I make, I mean, we're looking at two pages here about a film I made in Parliament Square. This is Putin's Happy. Putin's Happy, which is a sort of during 2019 when all the debates were going on post-Brexit about what what agreement we would get and people gathering in Parliament Square. You remember all the people in the background with flags and drums and stuff. I went down... properly tribal, wasn't it? Absolutely. Tribal is the word. And I went down 
half a dozen times and filmed people and talked to people on, on the right, as it were, yeah. and the far right about why they were there. And you can't really be pretentious about subject matter like that. It's just what it is. And just to give listeners a taste of the sort of caption, the sort of impish caption yeah. we've got here. So these are, as you said, these are some of the protesters or demonstrators who are on the more the right side of that Brexit no, argument. Isn't actually, but yeah. Oh, go, OK. Go, but yeah. So I've got this chap down here. This pro-Brexit character was in every demo and had a very loud voice and no shortage of conspiracy theories. Yeah. We've got the angry anti-Semite. We've got an early QAnon adopter. And then this chap with his briefcase under his arm. Yeah. This man was walking past a large crowd of pro-Brexit supporters telling them to shove their Brexit. Yes. Yeah. And he was very brave, really, because yeah. he was. that was a demo, a big gathering of the right and far right. And he walks through the crowd of thousands of people... He, luckily he timed it it was about 10 minutes before about 300 football hooligans turned up and did a procession right he wouldn't have survived that I don't think and he was just shouting at people about Brexit being a disaster yeah. and they were shouting back at him but he, because he was walking so quickly people double take yes they would and by the time they'd shouted back at him he was like 30 yards away yeah. and also a lot of the pro-Brexit people weren't in the best physical condition, so they couldn't run after him. It's quite amazing, really. And so he was just walking through, cutting through, just shouting at people. Mm. But it was an incredible act of bravery, but also very, I mean, kind of was stupidity as well at the same time. Yeah. That, that's what was going on then. All these people were mixing up together, and it was a, just a cacophonous, chaotic situation that it was very very disturbing and fascinating and you feel a bit like a anthropological study of your yeah. own people mm. which is a bit odd you are you're fascinated with crowds creating them mm. for works yes. and then witnessing them the mob for other works the crowd which is weird because i mob happy the mob happy artist yes because <laughs> i spent a lot of my life and still not liking crowds i don't yeah. really like them as a as a young person, I would avoid crowds and I would avoid gigs and places where there'd be lots of people because I was quite short and I just thought, if something happens, I'm going to be trampled or suffocated. I mean, you know, that kind of paranoia yeah. of the teenager just thinking everything, everyone's out to get me. <laughs> and so I've, I've that translated over. So, you know, I, to, I, do, I don't like crowds, but I'm fascinated by them. So it's The dynamics it's, of them. And yes, yeah. and like how they work. I go to demos to watch them rather than to take part in them. Mm -hmm just to see what people are doing, what they're making, the artwork they make, how they behave, the songs they're singing, the music, the behaviour, the fringe characters and so on. So I, that's my role, really. And maybe that's why when I was in these crowds of Brexit people, as I will call them, I wasn't taking it personally because I was, I was observing. And if you're behind a camera or a lens, you, you can totally distance yourself from what's going on. It's, it's yeah. a barrier. With your white helmet on almost, well, sort of it, metaphorically. It felt like that. But, you know, I, <laughs> yeah. because of how I look, my age and my demographic, you can just melt into this sort of situation and it's yeah. fine. No one... It's, it only became a problem if you had a big crew with you because then you were like traditional media and that's that's when people really didn't want to talk to you. Yeah, the bigger the camera. Or, exactly. Yeah. So I was very light. You know, usually it was me by myself or me with a, a cameraman, my friend Jared, who's as I say in the book, manages it to be shorter than I am. And I'm short. And so between <laughs> us, we are these tiny yeah. little men walking around talking <laughs> to these bruisers and people. And it was fine because we had no, we were no threat, physical threat to anyone. This is, the, in a way, a kind of Usborne cross-section we've just done of, yes. of, one of, the, of one of your work. And I asked you about the crowd, your sort of fascination and horror, potentially, mm. of crowds and the patterns within them and the mm. sort of shoal-like movements. Yes. 
of them because these are things that, as I say, you have. I mean, I, I'm going to mention the Battle of Orgreave. I know you've talked about it many times. Yes, I have to talk about anything really. Plays a large part in the book. Yes, one of your most well-known works, yeah. which was all about the wisdom or otherwise of a crowd and the and the dyna- dynamism and the... it's a reenactment of a, yeah. of a battle effectively or a riot you might want to call it but it's probably a battle a confrontation i think is the right term from the miners so they called it, it was it was in sort of miners folklore it was known as the battle of all yes. and you've taken that as your yeah. title i mean yeah. if you use the word battle that suggests a war and that suggests a campaign and so sounds like an english civil war well exactly thing, right? and it sort of was you know yeah. the miners strike was in effect a sort of mm. civil war of sorts it was a sort of divisive fight for ideas, battle for ideas and culture and a way of life in Britain. Mm. And so it was, for me, I saw, that's how I saw it when I saw it on TV as a teenager, that event. And so that just carried on. And, and, and so I wanted to make it into a, a public reenactment of a battle, battle reenactors and former miners. So it was just a very straightforward, you know, as an idea that you can describe in 30 words, but it's actually very complicated to do it. Yeah. It's a simple beware, idea. Beware the elevator pitch. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Jeremy. It's a, simp- a simple idea. It doesn't mean it's easy to make. No. No, that I mean, that's corralling people and or even just inviting people because some of the people that took part in that were miners who had originally yes. taken part in it. How did they respond to your original... The How brief. did you ask them? It was a long time in the planning. So people met me and they understood where I was coming from. Again, mm. I was happy to talk to them and tell them about my motivations and why I wanted to do it, which is why in the book is a similar thing. And I it's told really them, important, the motivation. Yes, exactly. Because yeah. the, the first question is why? This mm. is a ridiculous idea. It's absurd and it could go horribly wrong. And I told them why. And But I recognise, you know, they understood the absurdity of it and they sort of enjoyed that element as well. Yeah. ridiculousness of doing this thing and so if i could convince them then i thought i was going to be fine yeah. and they you know they inst- like i said it was i think instinctively they understood why it should be remade and seen and made into a tv documentary but also as a public event and so it, with the former miners it was quite straightforward much more than i thought i'd right. have to if, I'd, if it had been a real struggle to persuade people it probably wouldn't have happened because I, you don't want to do something that people don't really want especially yeah. like that. You don't want to re-traumatise people or upset them in any way or wind them up. How do you... I mean, when you say we're going to restage a, a battle, in inverted commas or not, yeah. and you, we're going to do it between 3 and 3.30 on Wednesday afternoon, yeah. what happens at 3.31? Well, this it's is quite thing, difficult to calm it all how down. How do you end it? a riot? Yeah, exactly. I mean, they peter out, don't they, usually? Yeah. That's what happens. Because it's a public event, it had to end at a certain point in a certain way. And we came up with an idea of how to do it because it could have gone on for hours. The audience would have dwindled out as well. So mm. that, that could have been one way of doing it. Mm. But in the end, it stopped at a certain point and a brass band played and miners came out with the banners. So it was a bit like the gala, miners gala. But also when the miners returned to work in 85, they often went into their pits with a brass band and with their banners. Mm-hmm. Heads held high despite being beaten effectively yeah. losing the, the the struggle losing the strike so it was an echo of that but it wasn't cheesy you might have felt it was a cheesy end but it actually it was it was a reference to what had happened it's phenomenally moving that yeah work yeah it's amazing people love that it's even just reading about it again in the book and listening to another couple of interviews you've done i found i've always found that profoundly moving that well it struck nerves it struck nerves and it was during <clears throat> I, I made it during the height of cool britannia and Mm. It was pre nine eleven, so you know, it's very Tony... untriumphalist. Yes, yeah. and Tony Blair was at his absolute height, you know, 
And so it was a history and the sort of Labour Party certainly were not interested in talking about that element of their history because it was mm. embarrassing. And it was not new. That's the least new Labour thing in the world, isn't it? Trade union politics in the 1980s. So for them, they were just trying to, to ignore it. So I was very happy to be making something like that at that time because it went against the grain of the politics of the time or what we felt were the politics of the time. It wasn't very cool Britannia. It's very uncool Britannia in a way. Yeah. And you mentioned the brass bands and your acid mm. brass yes. project, which is such a brilliant idea, which for listeners is brass bands, traditional colliery bands, I suppose. And the... factory bands. Factory bands, yeah. But industrial music. Yeah. From industrial areas, from industries, effectively. Yeah. Playing acid house music. So you have the industrial culture and you have digital culture coming together, basically. And these raves, this acid house music, a lot of that was, you know, danced to in former warehouses, in fact, former factories, yeah, industri- not just the Hacienda. No, obviously. it's like industrial spaces yeah. became available because... So these, this is, you're sort of holding up a brand new, you know, you're holding a mirror up to a mirror almost. Though. Yeah, I mean, it's meant to, I was, that project in, in terms was meant to tell a history of 20th century Britain through mm. music of a progression of the country, if, if that's the right term, of the, the history of Britain changing from being industrial to post-industrial mm-hmm. and what that means and, and where the connections are and what the histories are of those two mu- music movements and the fact they have they do have something in common. Yeah. It's a bit built around community. Rave music was and raves were. And then that community was... was uh, Government was not happy about that. It's you know, sort of commercialised and it sort of yes. imploded a bit. It imploded it? and the government became a target for the yeah. government, as did trade unions. So they, they have a lot in common. They both became politicised. Brass band music and, of course, trade unions are political organisations. But then raid became political, which is the last thing you might have expected. So yeah. there is that meeting point with politics and with the media, uh, hysteria around it and laws against trade unions and against raves and against you know so they and it's you know it's basically about crowds again it's about bodies what do you do with the like four thousand you can't help yourself yeah i know (laughs) but it's like all these bodies coming together and it's not to pick it it's actually to go and party in similar areas with similar people maybe the sons of miners or the younger brothers of miners or people who worked in the steel industry or people who worked in steel industry are now going to these places and dancing and uh, paying to go to factories rather than being paid to be in factories. So it's, it's all of this stuff. Such a fabulous nexus of... I know, it's of, so of rich. linkage and meaning yeah. and sort of, I don't know, it's an amazing thing. You set all this out quite early on in your career in the history of the, of world, the world, yes. Which yes. I love that. Yes. I think every kid has tried to do something similar in their rough book. Yeah, it's a, it's a sort of... All the, here's all the things I like and here's a, how they're connected. It's a flow chart, really. And yeah. I called it the history of the world in the way that I called Stonehenge Sacrilege. It was just a grand title. And it was, of course, it's not the history of the world, but it's the history of certain people's worlds. Mm. Some people, that is their world. It's the birth of dance music and it's maybe working in a factory as well or it's something. So it was meant to be a history of a certain world and but it, yes of course it's a kind of, kind of portentous it's an excellent title come on yeah I mean it's funny and you can call an, art, an artwork the physical impossibility of death in the mind of someone living you can call or something yeah you can call a chart the history of the yeah. world surely. So, and so it was meant to have a grand title to show the importance of this dance music moment but also of what of where it came from but also what had happened in Britain in the 80s and since the post-war era really yeah but yes, it includes all those elements and they're all connected to each other in unlikely ways. And... I mean, it's super satisfying looking at that work again, reprinted in the, your book. I yeah. mean, I love making the connections and 
setting out the solidity of those. Yes, because it's super subjective. Synapses. Yeah, yeah totally. That's and there's misspellings like. on it. And, yeah. you know, it's just my version, as, as everything is here. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying this is the definitive history of Britain. It's just how it felt or looked or, or was to me, maybe, or how I see it now. Or, you know, mm. it's, it's not objective. It's not objective history. It's really totally subjective and kind of playful version, maybe, or mm-hmm. uh, at best, I think, or something that skews it a bit, maybe. Quite a lot of your... Pra- We've talked about crowds, mm. Jeremy, and quite a lot of your practice also is... We mentioned your cover image, and a lot of your work involves kids, you know, mm. and, and going to schools and recruiting from schools to do things. Yes. Presumably telling children about your work, your practice, how your mind works, how their mind, how they shouldn't be scared that if their mind works in a similar way to celebrate it. Maybe. Presuming. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, I like... How's that? Does I that... like working with yeah. young people. Children, especially, have no preconceptions about art, contemporary art. So they just accept it if they like it. They mm. don't worry about who the artist was. They or... kind of dance to it if it's a good tune. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And if it, you know, who the artist was and how much the work is worth, you know, up, up to a certain age, they just want to look at it and see maybe themselves in it. So that's really mm. interesting. So abstract art, kids make abstract art from a very early age. And they're actually, I think children are actually a very good audience for art. And I've made work with children, not necessarily for them, really. I mean, I suppose sacrilege was, but often works that I make, you see children looking at some of the work I've made and really intently watching and watching. I made a film for Venice when I did the Venice Biennale. Yeah. It, had, it's, it starts with very super hyper slow motion footage of birds of prey, which then goes into cars being crushed in a, in a breaker's yard in Glasgow, Range Rovers being crushed. Why Range Rovers? Because it's just the, it's the kind of cars of arseholes, aren't they, really? More or less. <laughs> I just wanted you to say it. Yeah. And uh, they... Uh, as a cyclist, yeah, well, yeah. that's all I need to as say. A, really, as a man with eyes in his head, come yes, on. you need a, and you can almost tell Range Rover drivers. But actually, Audi drivers are, are getting up there with Range Rover drivers, I have to say. But anyway, in my uh, in my shit list, but uh, but that children intently watched that film because it had that, and then it had sacrilege in it, and then it had a procession, then it went back to the birds. But I think children, on the whole, are pretty good uh, audience. I mean, you know, I made a film with a group of uh, teenagers, basically in a school looking mm. uh, talking about the 80s called everybody in the place and it was about the 80s and how it was for me or how i saw them it's now with rave culture and history is the relationship between history and music and how music pushes history along effectively and yeah i gave it as a talk and we made it into a film and they were it's, a great audience those young people they're quite they've become quite i hate to use the word but i'm gonna i'm gonna use the iconic word the i word because those those kids in the film they're bright as buttons, yeah. and they've become quite iconic. They've become yes, which like, is the point. They're amazing. They're which amazing. The point, You've really. got a very light hand on the tiller editorially with that. I think. Well, I, what I wanted really, I wanted to make a film about rave, which was about now. It wasn't about then. So I just mm. thought the way to do it was to work with a group of young people in a classroom, and as the film develops, it's more it's as much about them as it is about then. Yeah, them and then, and so they become part. They're part of the film, but you're watching all the footage all the archive I show, sort of through their eyes because you'll see a big chunk of archive and then it'll cut to one of the young people looking at it and looking puzzled or disturbed by something. And so you just, you're starting to see history through the eyes of a young person. Yeah. Oh, especially because a lot of those young people, their parents were not born in the UK and so they had no idea about the traveller movement or they had no idea about rave culture when it began or about the minor strike. So for them, it's like watching something for the first time. And I'm, 
And so their reactions are very unusual about this thing. You know, the voice, you. voice is bad enough. Skittering across the uh, across the frame in a in white tie and tails. Well, yeah, exactly. Come I on, s- that's what you need. It's it's a lovely work. It's super touching. And as I say, they're stars. Whoever, yeah. they, whoever they are and yeah. whatever they're doing now. I mean, yeah. God bless them. They're, yeah, they're no, no, great, absolutely. Right? I'm very fond so, of them. Yeah, yeah, you, you can tell that. They're lovely. Mm. And you mentioned the Venice Biennale. I, again, that was another... I, I was lucky enough to see that oh, show. Oh, right. And right. I loved that. And I required a lot of looking at... Looking and looking and looking again, I think. There's a lot of things in it. There's a lot of things to yes, look at. And a wasn't... lot of pomposity pricking. You're... Well, I'd like to think so. I mean, yeah. it wasn't the kind of classic Biennale artwork, which is Thank God. kind of international st- style big that thing. Was, that is the white tie and tails. Yeah, vibe, and they're like it? the big statement. It was yeah. a, it was rooms, and each room was different, and there were different chapters, effectively, mm. and there's a film in it. And... Yeah. And it was about the past, present and future all kind of colliding, effectively. I, that's how I wanted it to feel like, sort of time-travelling. So yeah, there was a Neolithic object. People were handling. I mean, You could handle a ha- hand axe that was probably a third of a million years old, made by a person who isn't quite cl- us. Cl- classified as a human being as we know it. You know, that sort of thing was mind-blowing. Where, si- bo- where did you borrow those from? Uh, I think it was Museum of London. OK. They have the... Thousands yeah. and thousands of hand axes. When Heathrow Airport, you're quite obsessed with the hand axe. Yeah, I am. I yeah. am. But you know, you put a, you hold a hand axe of that age, and it fits perfectly in your hand. You just think, wow, I've just made this incredible connection to somebody. Mm. It's very beguiling to get people into a space, such a grand tea house of a space yeah, like that, yeah. that pavilion in the Giardini, and it's quite a sort of. I quite like that building, but it is quite pompous. Yes, and and then to do a show that lifts, you know, playfully kind of pulls the rug out from under that, yeah. that tradition, I suppose. It was called English Magic, the show, yeah. and it was really about the best and worst co- coinciding with each other, really, about England, not even Britain, mm. and about maybe about England's role in the world. There's, there's a room about Russia and the UK, and there's a room about Iraq, and then there was other, you know, the more magical aspect would have been, so there's a, a room about Ziggy Stardust tour of the UK, so it had a lot going on, but it was meant to be lightish, but just a, t- a bit time travelly, a bit sort of wandering around. And we... it's a, It was a wonderful experience. And I should just say, we're coming to the end of our time so okay. on this programme. That's fine. I wondered if that is, if the, if the way that your work bears itself, seems to bear itself out, it all gels together, but it seems like there's quite a lot of plate spinning. Is that how you work? Yes. Is that how you work day to day? It's a very good Your question, actually. You have to, because you, not everything you start will end, will actually be fulfilled. Mm. And I say yes, probably to more things than I should, but because you know there is going to be a percentage of sort of... Uh, I guess you're very curious. Yes, and I mean, I'm the kind of person that if someone wants to meet me, I will more or less meet anyone who wants to meet me, <laughs> because you never know where it will lead to. So mm. I... I try to do 120% of what I could be doing. And, and so I'm always doing too many things. But I, that's how it works with me. It's not as though I'm in a studio doing the next painting. The next painting is yeah. a human being or the next painting is a situation that arises by accident somewhere. So you have to keep being out and about, really, and just keep your eyes open and just being open to meeting someone who you might think, well, what, what's this about? But actually... It could lead to amazing things, basically. Arse is magic. It can be, yes. <laughs> I, hopefully it is. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy Della, thank you very much indeed. Pleasure, thank you. 
And Jeremy Deller's Art is Magic is available now, and we highly recommend it. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph Chungu, and Steph also edits the show. We'll be back next time, and until then, I've been Robert Bounds, and thank you for tuning in.